Wisconsin's true home team is Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Now featuring savings up to $2,500 off an installed patio door, up to $3,000 off an installed entry door, but only through May 31st. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Hey, just to bootstrap on something that Jane had in her news, uh, this is... This is Armed Forces Week in Milwaukee and and all over the country, leading up to Armed Forces Day, which is on Saturday. And tonight at the War Memorial, there's a a big event going on. They're going to be showing this film about Lance P. Sajon, who was one of the people from Wisconsin who was posthumously awarded the the Medal of Honor, which is, of course, the the highest award that this country can, can give. And the story of Lance Sajon is just an amazing, uh, an amazing story of bravery and courage. He was shot down over Vietnam and managed to avoid capture for 45 days, despite the fact that he was severely injured. He was ultimately captured, taken to essentially the Hanoi Hilton. He escaped from there, then was subsequently recaptured. He ultimately died in custody, but he, he, he serves as a, as he was just, just so inspirational to so many of the other prisoners that were there. And like I say, he was awarded the Medal of Honor by President Johnson. There is a film that is going to be being shown tonight at the War Memorial. I think the showing starts at 6.30. Before that, the, the road in front of the War Memorial is going to be renamed in honor of Lance Sajan. His sister, is going to be there, and she's going to be taking questions and, and giving a little presentation. I had an opportunity to meet her last night at the Armed Forces Week dinner that I emceed, and she's just a, a, an incredible woman. So if you're if you're looking for something to do this evening, I, I highly in, encourage you to go on down to the War Memorial. There's plenty of parking. I, the tickets are available online. I think you can get them at the door as well. They're twenty bucks, and and take part. In this, and the the proceeds are used for again some things they've got going on at the War Memorial Center. So I want to encourage you to do that. I also want to say a special thank you once again to all the organizers for uh, the Armed Forces uh, Week dinner for allowing me to MC. It was a wonderful event at the Wisconsin Club. Probably six hundred people. It was sold out. And if you want to see, I, I, there, there's all sorts of pictures of this that are floating around online. I posted one on my Twitter account, and, and only one. It's if you've ever seen the movie. Patton with with George C. Scott at the beginning of the movie George C. Scott playing the character of Patton comes out and, and there's this huge American flag backdrop and then he gives a, a speech um, as the character. Well, last night at the Wisconsin Club on, on the stage they had the largest American flag that I have ever seen up close and I, I posted a, a photograph of, of myself standing on, on stage in, in front of it. And um, I, I really felt like George C. Scott in the opening scene of Patton. So if you follow me on Twitter at Jeff Wagner 620, there's all sorts of photos about that. But that's the one I chose to fo- uh, to um, to post. And, and thanks, everybody. It was my birthday last night. And I could not, I said this last evening, I could not have picked a better way to spend my birthday evening than at that event with so with members of my family and so many dear friends and so many familiar faces. So this is Milwaukee Armed 
um, forces week. There's events all throughout the week leading up to Saturday when there's a big Harley-Davidson motorcycle ride, and there's all sorts of military displays that are at the Harley-Davidson Museum. So if you get a chance to participate, I, I encourage you to do that, particularly this, this movie that is showing um, this evening. Uh, it's just... I, I'm told by people who have seen it that you just cannot watch this without being incredibly, incredibly moved. All right. The final Jeopardy answer is 459. 459. What is the question? No, you don't have to call in. I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, the answer is the price of gasoline, at least in my area as I was driving in this morning. $4.59 a gallon. That is for regular unleaded, which is what I use. I don't need the premium. I don't need the the high grade. I just use your basic gasoline, $4.59 a gallon. Now, maybe you can find it for a little bit of less money somewhere else. Maybe you can find it for a little bit more. But we are heading like a rocket towards $5 a gallon. The national average cost of a gallon of gasoline as of this morning, $4.52 a gallon. That is an all-time high. And again, we're talking about regular unleaded, not premium, and we're not talking about diesel for people who have diesel-powered engines in their automobiles or for the people who, I don't know, drive trucks and, and what they're ending up paying, diesel probably about a dollar or so more a gallon, but $4.59 a gallon. Now, I, I, I've always argued that high gasoline prices are extremely regressive. By, by that, I mean they hit lower-income people harder. And it's just like sometimes you'll hear taxes are, are being are, are regressive. And that's what it means. Um, and, and gasoline prices are like that. For gasoline prices, if you happen to be better off financially, you don't like paying more money. But at some point in time, it's like, okay, well, I, I, you can afford it. You can afford it. But for people who are on fixed incomes, for people who are not as well off financially, well, what ends up happening is, you know, you, you've got to have gasoline to get around. You, you've got to, you've got to get to the grocery store. You got to take your kids to school. You've got to get yourself to work. And when you're paying two dollars more per gallon, say, than you were a year ago, you know, that that adds up. If let's say you drive 10 gallons, use 10 gallons a week, which for a lot of people, I think, is a conservative sort of estimate, you know, that that difference between two fifty nine and four fifty nine, well, you know, that that's an extra twenty dollars a week. That's an extra eighty dollars plus a month that you've got to come up with. And where is that money going to come from? Where do you cut back? And then when you look at what's going on with all other costs that are going around, including starting at the grocery store, how do people deal with this? Well, I, I have to I have to admit that I, I've kind of been half watching gasoline prices, and it's been sort of this academic thing about how, okay, we, we see how inflation is just running rampant. But I admit, as I was driving to work today, and, and I looked over and I thought $4.59 a gallon. Now, I don't have one of those jumbo tanks or stuff, but typically, you know, when I stop to fill up to get gas, I, I probably put on, on balance about 10 gallons in. I'm thinking that that's, that's almost 46 bucks to put 10 gallons of gasoline in my car. 
And, and yeah, I guess I can afford it, but, but how, it is getting to the point where I'm starting to say, okay, maybe we, we need to consolidate trips. Maybe we need to really start to rethink, oh, do I need to go there? Do I need to go here? And I'm also thinking for other folks, you know, when you're talking about, again, $46 to put 10 gallons of gasoline in a car, I mean, how, how, how is this impacting people? Which is where I want to start the program today. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Over the years, I've always felt that there there, there was sort of a, a point where high gasoline prices really got people's attention. And there was one point in time years ago where it was 3 bucks. Gal- gasoline hits $3 a gallon. People start saying, oh, I've got to change my driving habits. I'm really noticing it. And then then it was $4 a gallon. Well, we've blown through that $4 a gallon barrier. You know, we're, we're now at four fifty nine, and I think the chances are we're going to hit 5 bucks before we go back down to 4 bucks. Is the skyrocketing, and it is, skyrocketing cost of gasoline impacting you and how? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Yeah, the final Jeopardy answer is 459. 459. That's the price of gasoline as I was driving in today. Now, again, maybe in your area you, you can find it for a few cents cheaper, maybe you can find it for a few cents more expensive, but we're we're pushing five dollars a gallon. This is the all-time high, record high for gasoline prices, at least across the country. And and maybe somebody's gonna correct me, but I don't think I've ever seen it in southeastern Wisconsin at $4.59 a gallon. And as one of our textures is pointing out, it's not even Memorial Day. And Memorial Day, of course, is when technically the, the summer driving season kicks off. No question in our mind, my mind that we're much closer to $5 a gallon than we are to going back to $4 a gallon or $3 a gallon or $2.50 a gallon. I think we've now gotten to the point where the spiraling, outrageous costs of gasoline are, are now starting to impact people's choices in, in really a, a big way. One of our texters says it's now costing him $350 a month in gas just to drive to work. Now, I don't know where he works, but but yeah, I mean, I, I can easily understand that if you're talking about like $45, $46 to fill up a tank of gas for 10 gallons. And of course, I know some of you have bigger tanks than that. But yeah, you can see how this would add up quickly. 855-616-1620. How is this impacting you? Jeff, I'm a farmer trying to put crops in the ground this spring with three tractors that hold 250 gallons apiece. Filling them up of every other day is a killer. Well, yeah, I, I have no doubt that that's it. And, of course, it's all contributing to this vicious spiral that you see with inflation because, okay, the truck drivers with, with diesel, and what, what's diesel, five fifty six dollars a gallon, whatever that is. So, you know, they, they've got to use the diesel to drive the trucks that are bringing the food to the grocery stores. So they've got to pass that cost on to the grocery store that then has to pass it on to the consumers. In this case, the farmer who's growing, you know, he's got to pass on his increased expenses with fuel costs on to whoever he's selling his crops to, and then in turn, they ended up passing it on. This is this vicious cycle that is, I, I don't think there's anything that suggests it's going to end anytime soon. Let's talk to Sally in Ozaki County. Sally, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? Good. I think the cost of gas will actually go down about the time the government has to decide on the Social Security increases that the senior citizens get. 
that's a big part of the factor that they use to determine what type, what percentage of increase is given. Well, right. Well, yeah, they look at cost of living. And, you know, that was one of the interesting things this year. Everybody said, hey, you know, we're, our, our Social Security payments are going up, you know, 7% or whatever that number was, or 8%, whatever. But the cost of living was actually going up 10 or 11%. So people were falling back. So you think that there's going to be a, yeah. a concerted effort to try to reduce it when the government's got to kick out more money? Oh, absolutely. Well, um, yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. I mean, you, you could be right. I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm not sure how much direct control that the government, you know, has on, on affecting the gasoline prices. Now, as I've argued before, uh, I think that when it comes to energy prices, Joe Biden has done just about everything wrong that you can possibly do since, since he took office. And I've also argued before people text me and say, well, you're not all for solutions. Oh, I, I do. I mean, I I have all sorts of solutions. For example, in Wisconsin, I think we should end the minimum markup law, which requires gasoline retailers to mark up the price of gasoline like over 9% and allow the free market to take over. That would probably immediately tomorrow lower the price of gasoline by 30 to 35 cents a gallon. I think we should in Wisconsin suspend the state gas tax is. There's actually two, which that translates to about 33 cents a gallon, and then use some of the COVID money that we're getting from the feds to offset what, what that would do, at least temporarily, to you know um, <clears throat> the highway funds and stuff like that. You do those two things, and you've immediately knocked 60 to 70 cents off the cost of a gallon of gasoline until somebody gets an idea of how to handle the, this inflation spiral that's going on. But so those are the couple of solutions that I would have. 855-616-1620. But this, this is just, it's a killer. And I just, for people who've got to drive distances to, to get to work, for people whose job depends on them, for example, driving around, maybe you're, you're a salesman, you've got to go out and make sales calls. For you know the, the average family that's got two or three kids, maybe in a couple of different schools, and you've got to drive back and forth to work, and you've got to shuffle the kids to different classes and all, this has got to be just absolutely killing you. Let's talk to Jay. Jay, you're on WTMJ. Yes, I drive uh, 70 miles each way to work. For a short time, anyway, I will be because I'm going to have to find a different job. But uh, I've got a little economy car, um, 70 miles each way. I'm driving 50, 55 miles an hour. i got people just flying by me, honking the horn. Uh, but I don't, I don't care anymore. I just drive 70 miles and put in $20 a day for gas and versus driving. I, uh, I don't even drive my pickup anymore because it yeah. would cost $48 a day for gas. So you're you're actually you're, you're making decisions about what cars you drive, where you go, how much discretionary driving you do because of the crazy cost of gasoline. Yeah, and I'm doing everything I can to get better gas mileage. And uh, like I say, my little Honda Civic, which is 18 years old, I'm up to 47 miles a gallon. Yeah, at 55 miles an hour. But if I drive like everybody else, 75, <laughs> 80 miles an hour, I'm down to. 30 miles a gallon, and 
I don't understand people aren't slowing down to save money. I guess they got a lot more money than I do. Or they don't realize how much they're paying. No, thanks to the car, they don't know realize how much they're paying for it. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of things that, that, that people can do. And, right, the faster you drive, the more gas that you're going to blow through. You want to keep your tires inflated. If your car has, like, an economy mode on it, you want to do that because that can save a little bit. And, and I'm all in favor of those things. But let's face it, that's kind of that's just kind of whittling around the edges of what is this overriding problem because at some point in time this this really and i and i think we're really past that point this becomes a major problem for middle class upper middle class and, and certainly people below middle class where you you've got to drive your car that's just the reality of it but you're now forced in this situation where okay I've got to put the gasoline in my car. Where am I going to get the money to do that? Well, the money's going to come from other things. So what are you going to cut back, especially when you go to the grocery store and you're used to, I don't know, spending $100 a week for a 20-pound sack of groceries, and now that $100 only gets you you know, 75 pounds of, of groceries. 855-616-1620. Eric, Eric, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, how's it going? Real well, thank you. What do you think? So I drive a diesel Jeep, and I guess one thing that is not talked about, you know, the diesel moves the semi-trucks and whatnot, yep. but people paid a premium price for their diesel vehicles um, because the sell point was to get better gas mileage. Well, now, you know, diesel's through the roof, and I myself drive a diesel Jeep, and, I mean, it's it's way over $100 when you get the diesel. It's like at five, over $5, and that doesn't seem to get talked to much, you know, a lot. Oh no, you're no. I mean, Eric, thanks. No, you're you're absolutely correct. Uh, I mean, like I say, I don't know. I don't. I don't drive a diesel vehicle, so I don't know what the average diesel cost is. But my guess is, the last time I looked, it was about a dollar more per gallon than the, the unleaded price is. So I mean, I'm guessing it's around five fifty or so. And, and again, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's probably close to that. But yeah, that's that's the cost that's being passed on that that you have, and everybody's got to pick this up. This is one of these real world things, and I guess it is frustrating to me that we have people in charge who are doing almost nothing to do this. Now, there, there's lots of factors. I get it's the war in Ukraine that's caused this problem. I get that there's supply shortages. At the same time, like I say, I think everything Joe Biden has done with regard to, again, gas prices for the last year and a half has been pretty much wrong, whether it's the war on the fossil fuel makers that has now discouraged investment to all the other stuff that's going on out there. A lot of these decisions to killing the Keystone Pipeline, they've all contributed to what I think is a very, very bad situation, and it's going to be a situation that gets worse. There are things we could do in Wisconsin. Like I say, get rid of the minimum markup law. Um, temporarily suspend the gas tax and use COVID money to do the road repairs. We could do those things. Unfortunately, I don't see any will to do it. But in the meantime, your consumers have got to figure out where you're getting the money to pay for the gasoline to get you to work and to get your kids to school. And, and I don't have a good answer for you unless the people in Madison and the people in Washington kind of wake up. But $4.59 a gallon and increasing... At some point in time, we got to say enough is enough, don't we? It is interesting. Some of the Joe Biden defenders say, well, don't you understand that there, there is a Keystone pipeline? No, what, what Joe Biden killed was Keystone um, 40, 
which was the extension of the pipeline that had been proposed and had been approved and was pending for a number of years, which would have, if it had been in service today, be bringing as much as 900,000 barrels of crude oil into the U.S. system. And that would have been more than enough to offset the crude coming into the U.S. from Russia. Um, but but that's what Biden killed. The Obama administration tried to put it on hold, and now Biden has killed it. So when we talk about the Keystone Pipeline, that's that's what we mean. And, yeah, I, I stand by what I said. Pretty much everything Joe Biden has done when it comes to American energy policy since he took office, I think is absolutely the wrong thing to do. And Americans are getting hit with that at the pump for 59 a gallon now. And I understand there's some apologists who say, well, there's nothing he can do because you've got Russia and things like that. Yeah, I, I understand that you've got external factors that are operating, but our energy policy has been a disaster. And in part, let's understand why. The Biden administration doesn't like internal combustion engines. What they want to try to do is force people into electric vehicles. Oh, okay, because they think they're better for the climate. That's all well and good. And at some point in time, we're going to get there. But we don't have the capacity to build electric vehicles right now, and there's also some climate issues with regard to how you produce the batteries, but it doesn't matter. We don't have the capacity. We do not have the technology right now to build electric vehicles that have the battery life to to match up to what goes on in cars. We don't have the technology to bring them down to reasonable prices, and we don't have a power grid to... um, refuel all these different cars if you would take electric vehicles off, if you take the internal combustion vehicles off the market. So the bottom line is, at some point in time, I, I do believe, maybe not in my lifetime, but at some point in time, we, we probably will have all electric vehicles. But we're not right there right now. And as a result of that, what we should have been doing is figuring out ways to increase capacity our local or domestic production of oil and figure out how we're going to bring more oil into more oil into this country so Americans don't have to pay four dollars and fifty nine cents a gallon. All right, let us switch gears. I, I was saying this earlier when I was talking to Steve Scafidi. If you have ever gone on the internet and searched for something, you want to you want to buy underwear, so you you go and you you search for you know boxers or or briefs or whatever, or you want to buy a laptop computer, and so you enter in you know Apple laptop computer. All right, once you do that, there are algorithms that are out there, and then you'll notice for the next six months, every time you log on to a computer, what you will find is you will find that you're, you're seeing pop-up ads for underwear or the Apple computer or, or whatever it is. You'll, you'll find the pop-up ads because your your Internet activities end up getting tracked. And so that information is then, hey, you know, Jeff is looking to buy underwear. So then, you know, that's sold to people. And then the people that sell underwear, you know, they're putting the pop-up ads. So every time you go back on the Internet, you, you are getting the ads for underwear. Okay, that's... That's just the reality. But the point of this is the technology exists to track your your behavior. We are all being watched in some category or another. Well, I want to talk about what happened in, in Buffalo over the weekend. You had, and I'm not even going to mention the guy's name, but, I mean, everybody knows this story. You have this psychotic 18-year-old 
who committed this mass murder. And all the things people are saying about him are absolutely great, are absolutely correct. This is this is someone who clearly mentally ill, who was radicalized, presumably by by stuff he he had read on the dark corners of, of the Internet, who committed this horrible hate crime, who also left. I mean, th- this was not a surprise. I- if you look back on the things that this person was doing, this is not a surprise. I guess maybe you don't know exactly that he's going to drive to Buffalo, New York, and he's going to, again, walk into a particular supermarket with a, a modified uh, weapon and, and start shooting as many black people as he can find. But you, you certainly look at all the different indicators that were out there, and th- these aren't I mean, these aren't breadcrumbs that he was leaving. These are giant loaves of bread trailing back to what he was planning to do. I mean, there's stories about how he, he'd show up at school where wearing a full-on hazmat suit. There are things that he apparently posted on the Internet over a a period of at least a couple years that I think any reasonable person would have looked at and said, this this is a problem, and and this person has a problem. And if you're going to have what they call red flag laws, which are laws that say that, you know, when you've identified these people who are clearly unbalanced well first of all that they should be on lists that they they shouldn't be able to buy guns i think most of us would agree with that and secondly they would certainly be people that should be subject to to scrutiny now in the case of of the buffalo shooting apparently when the person discussed the possibility of shooting up his school you know he was talked to by some counselor somewhere and they determined well you know he's just joking about it he's not serious He's not serious. And then there was absolutely like no follow-up on this at all. Now, I don't know how we stop mass shootings in this country. I, I, I don't. It's, it's a frustration. It is a problem. But I firmly believe that we can reduce the likelihood of mass shootings if we do a better job of identifying those people who are more prone to it. Now, that's not a perfect thing. You, you don't. You don't know. There are certain situations, and for example, if you remember the, the shooting in Las Vegas a few years ago where the guy went up in the Mandalay Bay Hotel and started like shooting down at the people who were at that concert, his background didn't necessarily give any indication that he was, was going to do that. I, I don't know that there were any obvious red flags. In the case of the Buffalo shooter, there have been red flags being thrown for a couple years, and nobody tracked this person. Nobody seemed to watch him. And I guess I, I, I raised this, this question rhetorically. I mean, I remember the old Tom Cruise movie, The, the Butterfly Effect, where the, the, the government tried to go out and they used these algorithm, algorithms to determine that people were going to commit crimes, and then they arrested them before they could do it. Well, I, I understand that you can't do that. that. That's a movie. But at the same time, if you're if, if we're going to have red flags that say that people who are expressing psychotic sort of tendencies and talking about mass shootings and things of the like, if they're going to be posting stuff on the Internet, if you can follow, if we follow people to tell what kind of underwear they want or when that they're thinking about buying a laptop, shouldn't law enforcement be able to flag 
post things that are that are going on so we at least get some indication that, hey, when you went out and interviewed this guy a year and a half ago after he threatened to shoot up his school, now he's still posting all these things. Maybe that judgment that you made that he didn't pose a risk, maybe you need to reconsider that. Our number, 855-616-1620. And, and I guess I, I understand... Some people might hear what I'm saying and say, oh, what, what are you talking about? Is this like 1984 where you want the movie, the, the book 1984, where you want Big Brother to be watching everybody? Well, the point is we're being watched now. And if we've got the technology that tells you what you want to buy or if you go on the Internet searching for, I don't know, some sort of bath soap or something, and we can determine that so that you can get ads for bath soap for the next six months or a year, shouldn't we be able to at least help red flag more of the psychos that are out there that are posting this stuff on the dark corners of the Internet so we can at least decide, hey, maybe Maybe we need to reassess our evaluation when we said when he wanted to shoot up his school, he wasn't a problem because it sounds like he's not getting better. 855-616-1620. That's, you know, when we, we all talk about gun control a lot. I, I think one of the things that all of us should agree on, Republican, Democrat, independent, conservative, liberal, whatever, we should all be able to agree that people – Dangerously mentally ill people with proclivities towards this type of violent act should not be able to walk into a gun store and legally buy a firearm, right? If we all agree with that, it then becomes, I think, incumbent on us to do a better job of determining who might fit into that category. And I understand sometimes it's going to be tough, but... But it seems to me, based on the breadcrumbs that this Buffalo shooter was leaving, that this was low-hanging fruit. This shouldn't really be a surprise to anyone that he was going to act out in this in this general sort of fashion. 855-616-1620. Do we need to do more monitoring of the postings that some people are putting on the Internet to help us identify that, you know, maybe... Maybe we should be intervening, at the very least, trying to stop them from being able to legally obtain firearms and maybe maybe seeking to actually, like, detain them because they've got huge mental health issues. 855-616-1620. We discuss. I guess, see, here, here, is, here is my point. Your, the brow, your browsing history is is out there it, the you know it, when you're on the internet you, you are not alone okay that's why you get all the pop-up ads when you go do searches for things that you might want to buy well in the case of the the buffalo shooter and i've made a conscious decision i'm, I'm going to not name him i mean th- there there are red flags all over he wore a full-blown hazmat school a suit to his high school he said he wanted to commit a murder suicide after graduating he'd been hospitalized for a mental health evaluation for a day and a half he posted a 180 page racist anti-semitic manifesto praising mass killers and talking about his own radicalization i mean there and that's just the tip of the iceberg there's all this stuff that is out there and i guess my my question is don't we need to be more aggressive from a law enforcement perspective 
in and again trying to find these people who are posting this crazy sort of stuff to maybe take a reevaluation of okay you, you talked to this guy a year or two ago and you've got some psychiatric counselor who doesn't think that he's a danger despite the fact that he's talking about like killing all sorts of people and committing suicide okay well well maybe you want to do a follow up and say oh now he's posted a 180 page manifesto you know talking about how he's you know praising mass killers maybe you want to rethink the, the idea that he does not pose a, a danger. But we don't do that. We don't do this kind of follow-up. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Chris. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I, I think that the notions of privacy invasion are misguided because when you post something on Twitter or Facebook or on the Internet, that's a public place. Yeah. And like I told the screener, it's kind of like those people that get upset when they're caught on security camera doing something walking down the sidewalk. If you're doing something on a sidewalk, you're in a public place. It's different than if someone's spying on you in your home. So I wouldn't be opposed to even if law enforcement had their people write apps or write programs that could scrape the net and just look for keywords. And I'm sure the NSA probably does this anyway. But if they looked for keywords and then they followed up on them. Now, whether you know whether you can arrest a person or take action based on what they said, I'm not a, a legal expert, right. and I think there's a there's a fine line there. You might have to, but at least could put them on their radar, and they could have people that they say were watching these people to see if that goes from, because yeah. um, some people just say stuff, off, you know, and they never act on it, and maybe they're just yeah. blowing steam. But so if, if it moves to the next step, if they're ordering weapons or whatever, and I, I don't want a, a police state, but like I said, these are public postings. So well, well, right. If you're publicly posting it, anybody else can see it. So why not the law enforcement? Well, well, right. And let let's. I mean, let, let thanks for call. Let, let let me take your example. Right. I don't want the police state either. But okay. So in in high school. He shows up wearing a hazmat suit. He talks about wanting to commit a mass murder and suicide. They evaluate him, and they decide, oh, he, he said he was only joking, so we'll believe him. And then he, he gets out, and he goes back, and he starts posting, again, the 180-page manifesto talking about how he revels you know, and enjoys mass killers, and he idolizes them, and, and all this other stuff. Well, maybe, just maybe... After he, again, after he's been evaluated and the whoever it is that analyzes him and said he doesn't pose a danger, sends him back out on the street, he keeps posting these things, maybe you should be on law enforcement's radar and maybe you should take in a reevaluation of, hey, maybe we got it wrong the first time when we, we brought the kid in, a kid, when we brought the person in and we didn't think that there was anything mentally ill about him or he was prone to, prone to danger, but now he's doing these other things, maybe then what you need to to do is you need to take at least a second look about this and look and i understand this isn't going to stop all this but in you know some people are saying well you know wisconsin you know needs a red flag law i don't have a problem with red flag laws but here's the thing new york new york where this happened they've got a red flag law okay they they the the, the red flag law did absolutely nothing in this particular situation because well, okay, they threw a red flag a couple years ago. Somebody decided we don't think he poses a danger. They sent him back out on the street. He continued to post all sorts of crazy stuff, and then he finally went out and acted about it. My point is I have no problem with red flag laws, but red flag laws aren't going to work unless you're going to make a commitment to follow up on them. And maybe that is a starting point, whether it's in Wisconsin or nationwide. Back with more in just a couple minutes. 
Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. All right. I, 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 early on in my career of doing talk radio, I, I sort of developed this rule that I, I wasn't going to – there were certain topics that I just didn't want to want to touch, not because I didn't have opinions on them or whatever, but because you don't want to do this thing, a show that makes you sound kind of like you or the people that are calling in are, are all kooks. And, and I, I say that with – all respect, because there's people who have carved out a, a living in this industry by doing the late night shows where they they take phone calls from people who swear that they were abducted by aliens and that they've had, you know, they're you know, that they've got a two headed love child, which is the product of a, a, a liaison they had when they were abducted at three o'clock in the morning by the the space person for wherever. And I've just always made the decision and I kind of kind of go down that route. But that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that there might not be unexplained phenomena that we should be looking into. Now, the term everybody is familiar with is UFO, unidentified flying object. And that, of course, has the connotations of it's spacemen from Mars and it's people from a different planet that are visiting in the typical flying saucer. There's another term that's out there, and it's... It's UAP, not UFO, not Unidentified Flying Object. It's UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. And what this refers to is stuff that credible people have seen, including like military pilots and things of the like, that they cannot explain. You know, stuff that they have seen in the air. And they're not saying, nobody's saying aliens in connection with this. But there is a hearing that's been going on today. And actually, I believe it's the first hearing um, on unidentified aerial phenomena that this has been conducted by Congress in, um, in, in more than 50 years. And what's happening is the House Intelligence Subcommittee on Counterterrorism is looking into this. And they're hearing reports about these unidentified aerial phenomena. Now, again, nobody is saying that they think it's aliens, but they're looking at a couple hundred reports that they've amassed over the years of things that have been observed that are, in fact, unexplainable. And I don't think anybody, like I say, is saying, well, this automatically means it's spacemen from Mars. But what they're saying is, look, this this might be a national security sort of matter because we don't know if this is some sort of drone that China is sending up or, or something that Russia is sending up. We don't know what this is. And, and we're not saying that this is a spaceman from Mars, but we're saying this is something and, and there might be there might be a reasonable explanation for this. There's reports that there have been over the years about like 18 examples of objects displaying no visible propulsion. Um, but, but they found examples of that that's beyond the known capabilities of the U.S. or its adversaries. So they're th- seeing things like going through the air, and they're saying, well, look, this just doesn't make any sort of sense. We cannot figure this out. 
There's also, they said, look, we, we think that, you know, China and Russia are experimenting with hypersonic technology, which moves at more than five times the speed of sound. But we, we don't know what that, that's what this is. But we think that there's at least enough stuff out there that we should start concentrating on and investigating this. All right, I want to open up the phone lines. Our numbers are 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. See, to me, I think there's two issues here. The, the whole idea of, you know, is there alien life force forms that are out there? Now, I, I am not arrogant enough to think that we are the only place in the entire vast u- universe where there is intelligent life on the planet. And I understand you look at some of the things that goes on in this world and you wonder if there is intelligent life here, but you know what I mean. I, I, I don't know that I believe that we are alone in the vast universe. At the same time, I don't buy into the notion that there, there are aliens that are out there trying to contact us. I do buy into the notion, though, that there are unexplained aerial phenomena, that a lot of these reports about what people are seeing are, are correct, and that as a result of that, it's worth investigating this from a national security perspective to try to see to the extent possible if we can determine what exactly is is going on you know you see this fast moving you know some some military pilot sees some fast moving object that's darting around and moving at angles that it's you you would not think that any um aircraft that we have are capable of doing well okay i think that that's worth investigating it doesn't mean it's it's the spacecraft from mars what it might mean is it might just be an atmospheric phenomena that's entirely possible that the pilot might be wrong in what he saw or alternatively it might theoretically be some other nation that's developing some sort of experimenting with some sort of different technology i mean i guess i do believe that there are unidentified aerial phenomena out there and i also believe it is in our interest collectively to investigate this and just because somebody reports it doesn't necessarily mean that they're nuts 855-616-1620 that's the accident mortgage talk and text line all right are do you believe that there's such a thing as as unidentified aerial phenomena or are these various r- reports, the hundreds of reports that the government's documented over the years, are these just, I don't know, the, the product of overactive imaginations or people that are making missteps or things like that or just incorrect evaluations? 855-616-1620. I actually think that there's something to this. And I say that not necessarily, not saying that I think that it's aliens trying to contact us. Rather, I, I think there might be national security interests that at least merit our investigating this. 855-616-1620. Are there aliens among us or might there be something else going on and should we be looking into it? We discuss. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. One of the things going on in Washington D.C. today is, for the first time in fifty years, they're, they're having a, a congressional hearing on again the, the the headlines say UFOs. That's that's not 
technically what the government calls them. They call them unidentified aerial phenomena, UAP. But, you know, things that are in the air that are sighted and are seen by people who appear to be reliable accounts that the government cannot explain. I think... See, to me, this is not kooky on its face. I I believe that there are these things out there, and I think that it's worth our time to try to figure out what this is, not because I think it's necessarily spacemen or aliens that are coming down, but because I I think, you know, in some cases it's going to be weather phenomena, but in other cases it, it may very well be, I don't know, foreign nations or something that are experimenting with different technology, and it's in our interest to know it, isn't it? Let's start with Chuck in Manitowoc. Chuck, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Well, thank you. What um, do you think? Talking about talking about the UFO stuff, I mean, if you look back, I mean, everybody's heard about Roswell, um, the Phoenix Lights. There's been so many documented cases of UAPs, UFOs, whatever you want to call them. Uh, the Phoenix Lights, uh uh, oh, I can't remember the name, the town in Texas, Stevensville, where there's been uh, police officers that have taken photographs of them. Socorro, New Mexico in 1968, where uh, they took pictures of an, a flying saucer, what have you, lifting off from the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, whether they're real or not, I don't know. But there's just too much evidence out there to say that they're not. Uh there, you have the TR-3Bs, which are the, the triangles that everybody sees now that uh, had the big problem in Belgium a few years back, where they were checking, the Belgian government was checking with the United States, wondering if we were actually flying new technology. Mm-hmm. Back in the back in the 40s, uh, Germany supposedly uh, re-engineered a, a downed UFO that they were actually had... A flying Germany actually had a flying saucer near the end of World War II that they were developing. I don't know. It's uh, there's a lot of information out there, and depends on how far down the rabbit hole you want to go. Yeah, no, thanks, thanks for calling. Um, you know, and I'm, but, not saying, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah, because I, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole. <laughs> that, that's it. But I, I do think that, that part of the reality that's out there is that there are the, these UAPs, this, this unexplained aerial phenomena. And I, I think in some cases it, it it just it lacks it lacks an explanation. Again, maybe it's maybe it's an atmospheric disturbance. I mean, I don't and I don't want to make assumptions um, about you know, where it is. I mean, sometimes the government's saying sometimes this could be a configuration of birds or it could be balloons or, or something you know like that. So you, you don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole. And I, I think saying. We should look into these sort of things. Um, it is not the same as saying, "Well, gee, we're waiting for you know the we're, we're waiting for the the spacecraft to to land." What it's saying is, "All right, we we live in a world where you have competing governments that are constantly trying to you know develop all sorts of different technology. Maybe it's again vehicles that travel at five times the speed of sound." And, and do I think we're there yet? No. But there's enough of this stuff out there that I think it's worth at least having a public discussion of this and having the military say that this is what we know and this is what we don't know. And sometimes it might just be that the answer is we don't know exactly what this is. Yes, we have this report. We've investigated it. Yes, we think 50 people you know, saw this in the desert at night, and, and we can't tell. We, we, we don't 
it's no, if it's atmospheric, you know, we didn't pick up anything on the radar screens. We don't know exactly what this is, and we're going to continue to investigate. And, you know, sometimes just stuff happens, and, and sometimes there might not be an explanation for these type of things. But I think it's at least a, a good inquiry, and I think it's in the interest of everybody to get the, this out there, as opposed to, again, some of the conspiracy theorists that might be out there saying, well, you know, they're, 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 the government has this huge UFO project, and they've, they've you know, got aliens that are, you know, living in some cave somewhere in, in Nevada or whatever. No, I mean, it's if, if there is a phenomena that gets reported, and people see it you investigate it and then you 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 try to determine what it is and like i say sometimes just like crimes go unsolved sometimes maybe you're not going to be able to figure out what the mystery is so i I, i'm not jumping all over this but i think it's it's probably good there's enough of this stuff that goes on that i think it's you know worth the time for doing this here's one of our texts jeff thanks for uh, channeling your inner art bell yes military and civilian pilots have seen some things we need to figure out what they are i think it's worth paying attention to yeah, that's um I, I think that's you know what this is. Now, okay, one of our other texters says it's beyond crazy. With everything going on in the world, shortages we have, border issues, inflation, politicians are discussing um UFOs or unidentified aerial phenomena in Washington. Well, yes, because candidly it's with some of the politicians. I, I'd rather have them talking about you know, unidentified aerial phenomena than necessarily figuring out what they're going to do to further mess up what's going on on the border or to further mess up you know the way we're trying to deal with inflation. But again, I, I think, is this the top priority that, that we should have in the government? Well, the answer is clearly no. At the same time, I, I don't know, from a perspective of homeland security, if there is unexplained stuff out there, don't we want the military investigating this to determine, hey, this is, we, we don't think this exists, or we don't think this particular thing happened, or maybe we're worried that one of these nations that don't have our interest at heart, maybe we're worried that they're trying to develop some sort of technology that would be a threat. I, I don't think that's going too far down the rabbit hole. There are almost 650,000 people whose lives are touched by the Wisconsin Retirement System, which covers employees of the UW system, local police, firefighters, and publicly employed teachers. Join Annex Wealth Management and our very own Steve Scafidi for a special webinar, Understand Your WRS Potential. The seminar is tomorrow, Wednesday, May 18th at 4 p.m. Retirement planning can be complex. What does your most recent statement mean for your plan? No matter your age or retirement status, learn more as we walk through pension scenarios and answer WRS questions. Register for the free webinar at AnnexWealth.com slash events. All right, Summerfest is coming up. Well, relatively soon, in a little bit more than a month, Summerfest this year is different. Remember, it runs, it's back to its normal time in June and early July, but instead of starting on a Thursday and taking a Monday off and running through the following Sunday, it's going to be nine days, and it's going to start on June 23rd, which is a Thursday, run through the 25th, so the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, come back the following three days, June uh, next week, Thursday through Saturday, and uh, that would be July 30th through the 2nd, and then do the same thing again July 7th through the 9th. So it's a nine-day period, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. This is something that they're, they're trying as an experimental basis. But I bring this up because... I know there's people, and we were talking about the cost of living going up and how things are expensive and all. Summerfest came out with their their list of 
of daily admission promotions. And I, I've said this before, and I just want to highlight this. For people, if you are paying out of your own pocket to go to Summerfest, you are not trying very hard. That's just it's kind of the reality. And and I understand people, I always get texts or calls, people, ah, Summerfest is so expensive, etc. I mean, I mean, here's the deal. They have, I, I'm just looking at it, first day, June 23rd, noon to 3, um, free, free, admission if you go if you bring two jars of peanut butter i mean it's it's different situations like that they've got specials on the thursday on the friday on that first saturday matter of fact they have specials almost every day if not every day that gets you in at a discounted rate or gets you in for free so i bring this up just because again i i understand that there's people who you know are, are concerned about the costs and things like that but like i say they're Summerfest tries its best to be affordable. As a matter of fact, that's one of the things I think that's consistent with their 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 role as, as part of, of a public enterprise. So, yes, if you decide that you're going to go down on Friday night at 7 o'clock and walk in and buy a ticket at the gate, yes, you're, you're going to you know pay the full price. On the other hand, if you just plan just a little bit, what you are going to find is opportunities to you know get in. Now, typically, you're going to have to go a little bit earlier in the day, but you're going to find all sorts of opportunities to get in for free or for almost free by, again, bringing a couple jars of peanuts, butter, or non-perishable food items or things like that. So I bring this up. As we get ready to start Summerfest 2022, if you're worried about the cost of going down there, well, one of the things you can do is just look at all the different deals they have and take advantage of them and then save that money to spend on beer or whatever. Welcome back. So very glad to have you with us. Let's switch gears for a minute. By the way, um, right after the 2 o'clock news, we're going to talk about the latest crime developments in Milwaukee. And if you, you think... What happened over the weekend was just an aberration. Well, I mean, yesterday into this morning was not a good day either. But we spent a lot of time on it in the first hour and a half of yesterday's show. So I do have some ideas and an aspect of the discussion, but we're going to save that till the the 2 o'clock hour. Something completely and totally different. For the longest time, once the pandemic hit, what you had is you had a, a number of, of restaurants. For example, in Wisconsin, Tony Evers pretty much closed everything. And so the, these restaurants were, were forced to close. They weren't taking diners in. And so what would happen is they some of them tried to you know squeak by by doing carry out and things like that. And for, for many, many restaurants, it's been a, a slow return to health. But people are going out more. I think there's all this pent-up demand to, to want to go out. Now, part of the problem is with inflation running rampant, it's sort of a double-edged sword for restaurants, for example, because they, they've got a, they're paying more for the, the steaks that they have. Just like when you go to the grocery store, you pay more. Well, the restaurants are paying more as well. So they're having to pay more, so they have to pass that on to consumers, so they charge more. At the same time, you have consumers who, even though they want to, for example, go out to restaurants, they're in this situation where, like we were talking about in the first hour of the program, hey, gasoline is now $4.59 a gallon, or thereabouts, an all-time high, so your amount of disposable income 
goes goes down. So the restaurants get whipsawed. They've got to charge more, and at the same time, people are paying more for everything else, so they've got less disposable income. And so one of the things that I think from some cases that it's easier it's it, is it easier to say okay i used to go out to dinner three times a week now i'm going to go down to, out to dinner once a week is it easier to do that than it is hey i'm going to cut back and, and buy 35 dollars less groceries for the family so it, it's this this problem that's going on and it's a it's a problem right now for the restaurant industry and it's one of the reasons again why this inflation is so absolutely crippling and why it's frustrating that you don't get the idea that government has much idea as to how to deal with this, at least in the short term. But in any event, even though there's all these issues that are going on with the restaurant industry and stuff, there is something that is starting to come back with regard to the dining experience. Now, let me kind of back into this. As I was saying before, last night I was the MC for like the tenth year in a row at this uh, at the the banquet that they have to to commemorate the to start the beginning of, of Armed Forces Week. So this was a, a, a banquet at the Wisconsin Club in the Grand Ballroom, about six hundred people, um, lots and lots of people from the military there who were in like like full military dress. I mean, there were. There were all sorts of people, Marines in their dress blues and you know, people from the Navy and uh, lots and lots of medals and things like that. And for, for men, it was black tie optional. So there were a number of guests that were in tuxedos and, and everybody else was in, was in suits. That, this, was not, this was not a casual sort of thing. And for the, the ladies, it was the same sort of thing. I mean, it was, it was evening attire. And on, on the one hand, look, I, I love to be casual. I, I'm, I, I live, I live during the summer in shorts and, and, and I live most of the year in, in blue jeans and, and things like that. I, the idea of, you know, having to go up to my upstairs closet and dig out my lawyer suits and put those on, I, I just, as a general rule, I don't like it. By the time Friday rolls around, if we're going out for a fish fry, last thing I want to do is get dressed up. And one of the nice things about what I do for a living is, you know, as a general rule, unless I'm going out and doing something like I was doing last night, I, I don't, I don't have to dress up. I don't have to go in, you know, in a suit and, and tie or a coat and jacket or things like that. I don't have to do it. And when I go out and I want to relax, I, I certainly don't want to, as a general rule, have to dress up. Having said that, it was kind of nice to go to this this place last night where you did have to dress up, and, and everybody was dressed up, and everybody was in suits, or in the case some guys with tuxedos, or the military folks were all in their dress blues, and the ladies were all in their, their formal evening attire. There was something nice about that every once in a while. And it was interesting to me because there's a story today in the New York Times Leave the sweatshirt at home. Dining dress codes are back. And it's a story about a number of restaurants in in New York, which have, you know, for the longest time, you know, before the pandemic and stuff, that they, they had dress codes. And the dress codes got relaxed more and more, kind of the casual dining thing. And now they're starting to bring them back. And they're saying, look, at some of these restaurants, they're saying, look, we, we're, we have certain rules. You know, no blue jeans. You know, no cutoff, you know, no, no cutoff shorts. Um, you know, for gentlemen, you know, you don't necessarily have to have a tie, but, you know, we, we want a coat and, you know, dress pants or something like that. And they're starting to put these rules back in place. And you know what? They're, they're, 
they're they're not discouraging business. As a matter of fact, a lot of these restaurants are saying, "Look, this we're trying to create this particular atmosphere." And what we're finding is that people are responding to this. Okay, our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text line. Now, look, it, I I I don't want to have to put on you know, one of my, my lawyer suits and a tie and dress shoes every time I go out to dinner. I, I don't want to do that. But at the same time, for for special occasions, if you're going to some special restaurants, I don't have a problem at all with dressing up. As a matter of fact, it's kind of, I, I think, nice to, to sort of, you know, dress up for some of those special occasions or some of the special restaurants. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Are there occasions where to go out to dinner? And again, I'm not talking about you're, you're going to, I don't know, the, the Ponderosa restaurant with your three kids on a Wednesday night. That's not what I mean. But if you're, it's that special occasion and it's that Saturday night and it's your anniversary and you're, and you're going out with yourself and your spouse and maybe a couple friends or something, is it nice to get dressed up every once in a while? And for the restaurants that decide that they want to impose and then enforce a, a dress code, is that going to stop people from going, or might it actually be an attraction for people? 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, not every night, but I think there are times when people do like to get dressed up, and I don't know, on those occasions, I think that, there are restaurants that you might want to go to, and it's not going to stop people from going. I like to get dressed up every once in a while. 855-616-1620. How about you? Interesting reaction. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This has been a tough time for restaurants. And in general, a lot of restaurants are just glad that, that they have people that are willing to come in through the door. But there's a story in the New York Times today about a number of restaurants in New York that are starting to reimpose dress codes that they had. Now, look, I, I know everything has gotten a lot more more casual, casual workplaces and things like that. But they're starting to impose the, the dress codes that they had like pre-pandemic. And they're starting to say, OK, we've got rules, no hoodies, no flip flops, no no blue jeans. And you know what? I, I don't mind that. Now, I'm, I'm a casual sort of guy, uh, but if. You know, for every once in a while, for at a for an upscale meal at a nicer sort of place, I think it's nice to get dressed up a, a little bit. Um, let's see, Jeff. I totally agree with the dress code at upscale restaurants. I took my son to a, a local restaurant last week for his birthday. There is a dress code clearly stated at the front hostess desk. However, as we were walking to our table, I saw a group of young ladies, and the one that stuck out had a bright pink hooded sweatshirt on with matching sweatpants and flip flops. No, um, okay, you know, then that's, that, that's, and not, but I leave that on the restaurant. I mean, it's kind of like if you're going to have the dress code, you have to go ahead and enforce it. Jeff, I don't agree. Time has passed for dressy, dressy dining out. We'll choose a different restaurant. Heck, funerals, weddings, and worship services are filled with people dressing casually. I do dress up for funerals and weddings, but even that has changed. Well, I dress up for funerals and weddings too. Um, and, and again, I, I understand that this isn't, for every restaurant but I, I do think that there i think that there is a niche that is out there for you know there's going to be times where people want to go out for a, a nice meal 
and they, they like the idea of, of being dressed up. Now, again, you can carry that too far. I understand it. But I don't think I, I think there is a market for that. I think people would agree with that. Jeff, my husband and I both have dirty day jobs. So dressing up is a treat for us. And then they sent me a picture. Uh, we very much enjoy wearing our formal kilt wear for anything from weddings or dinner in a nice restaurant for no particular reason. We find the way people dress at some occasions appalling. We welcome the idea of of uh, dress code. Jeff, I agree with you. What happened to getting a little dressed up and going out to your local supper club? To me, it just makes the experience a little better. I think the prime rib tastes a little better. Well, uh, you know, look, a dress code isn't going to save it if you've got bad service and if you've got bad food. But there is this idea of, of the atmosphere that's there. And I think that's one of the things that you kind of cultivated at a restaurant. And, and, and maybe it, it's the whole idea. And, and not every restaurant's like that. I, I get it. But, you know, there are some places where I think maybe it's like, okay, this is the special occasion. We can only go here, you know, once a year or twice a year or whatever. So it is nice for the you to get dressed up, for your spouse to get dressed up, and you go into this atmosphere where – all right, there's there's not the people with the baseball hats and, you know, the torn jeans and the flip-flops and things like that, which isn't to say that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that maybe there's a time and a place for everything. Jeff, I agree. I like to get dressed up from time to time to go to a restaurant. It makes you feel special and enhances the experience. However, I'm not sure that everyone feels that way. Well, I'm sure some people don't. If restaurants would start requiring you to dress up, I think business may go down for those particular restaurants. I see even in fancy restaurants, people wearing um, rugged looking clothes. I think that unfortunately, we've gotten to be such a casual society. Well, I think there's a there, there is a, a fine line. But if you're I, I don't know if you're this. I mean, the history behind dress codes is that you're, you're trying to cultivate a, a certain clientele and there's a certain image that, that you want to have. And again, that's not for it's not for everybody, but I, I don't see anything wrong with it. Jeff, I think it makes for a good date night. Um, you know, <laughs> that's well, that's okay. Um, Jeff, I definitely think we should dress up more, and I think we should do even more of this. Well, I think there's a lot of people that are out there. Jeff, if the food is good, people will put up with any rule the restaurant might have. Well, I don't know that I feel that way necessarily, but at the same time, it's all part of the ambiance and the experience. And what you're looking for in the local pizza parlor is perhaps different than what you're looking for in the fine dining place or the country club dining room or whatever it might be. And there is a time and a place for everything. But for some of the restaurants out there that are toying with the idea of, well, we're, we're trying to, we, we want to upgrade the ambiance, but they might be afraid to do it because they're afraid that people are going to say, well, I'm not going to put on a, a, a jacket, for example, to, to go there. Or, or what do you mean I can't wear my blue jeans and things like that? You might be surprised because even folks like me who live in their blue jeans, you know, there, there might be an occasion where, hey, okay, I'm, I'm going to put on a nice pair of dress slacks and a jacket to, to go to this, this dining place. There's more people out there, I think, than people might think. Hey, let me connect the dots on some Milwaukee insanity here, here for you. Remember a couple of years ago, um, Strauss, the, the, the meat producers, they wanted to 
leave their Franklin location and no, cut it. They, they want to they want to leave their location on on the south side of the, the city. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to move to uh, the, the Century City area in Milwaukee, and they were going to bring a couple hundred jobs along with them. And this this Century City is sort of this struggling business complex, like off of Capitol Drive, et cetera. And you had the aldermen and some of the neighbors who just turned up their nose at having this, you know, meat processing facility there. And and so ultimately, the, the folks at Strauss said, fine, we're going to, we, we, we don't want us, we'll, we'll just go somewhere else. And so with them, they, they took hundreds of good paying jobs, et cetera. All right, I was thinking about that when I saw this story. Now, I am old enough to remember when Capitol Court, which is like 60th and Capitol and stuff, when that was actually a thriving shopping center. I mean, I was a kid. I mean, I could remember that they had big, you know, big department stores. During summers, they used to have this thing called, um, I want to think, I think they called it Funland, which was out there. It was like this mini amusement park and stuff. But it, it was it was a thriving area. And, of course, it, it went downhill. And now it's pretty much of a ghost town. Well, they, I'm thinking about this because there was a Walmart store that's essentially on, on 60th and Capitol. And the Walmart store went out of business a few years ago, and it's been vacant since 2016. All right, so you've got this big retail store on 60th and Capitol. They're now trying to find somebody desperately who will, will buy it and will you know operate it as something. But so far, not, not a lot of interest. They're going to start, they're going to auction it off. They're starting the bidding on this former Walmart store, which is you know, 161,000 square feet, the the bidding is start is going to start at eight hundred and twenty five thousand dollars. Okay, so keep that that number in mind. Here's the deal: the Walmart property is assessed for four point seven million, down from a high in two thousand nine of fifteen point nine million. So thirteen years ago, the city at least said this property was worth fifteen point nine million. It currently says it's worth $4.7 million. Well, that's what it says. But, I mean, the free market really tells you what something is worth. And they're, they're bidding it. You can buy a property that's supposedly worth $4.7 million for eight hundred and twenty-five grand. Well, what that tells me is that there's no way that property is really worth $4.7 million. Because who knows if they'll even get eight hundred and twenty-five grand for it. Big picture is, you know, how, how smart... Does the city of Milwaukee look when it had, for example, that this this new tenant like Strauss that was willing to move in to that that general area, bring in hundreds of of good paying jobs to the community, but the community ends up saying no, and so now you've you've got more and more vacant buildings, and you're trying to essentially give away a building that you say is worth four point seven million for eight hundred and twenty five grand. And until the city of Milwaukee figures out how to get its house in order, you're always going to have these problems. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. There is a movie, 1989 movie, featuring Patrick Swayze called Roadhouse that you have probably seen because it seems to me every time I turn on the television and I'm channel surfing, Roadhouse is, is on. And the, the basic premise, and I don't, you know, it's one of these movies that, 
Now, I'm not sure it's a very good movie, but there are parts of the movie that are kind of entertaining, and that's why it's on all, all the time, despite the fact that it's you know 30-some years old and everybody's seen it. But the, the basic premise of the movie Roadhouse is that Patrick Swayze plays a a character, a, a legendary bouncer, and he work goes from you know bar to bar all across the country. That these bars you know have problems, and he comes in and he helps straighten them out. And there is a scene in the beginning of Roadhouse where he's just checking out the this latest bar that he's going to work at. It's just, I mean, it's a nightmare. You got all the different problems that are going on, and, and he has a meeting with all the different bouncers, and he says, "Okay, look, here, here's the rules." And I'm I'm kind of paraphrasing about this. He says, "Well, okay, here here is the deal." He said, "If somebody is is acting up, I want you to ask them to stop, but be nice. If they." won't stop and you need to walk them i want you to walk them but be nice he says when they get outside and again i'm paraphrasing this a little bit but it's keep, keep saying be nice and he said well when when you get when you get them outside and you ask them to leave i want you to ask them to leave and tell them they've got to leave the property but you know when you ask them to leave and tell them they've got to leave the property i want you to be nice and he says so that's the operative thing be nice until it's not time to be nice. And then, you know, one of the bouncers says, well, how will we know when that is? And he says, I'll tell you when it's not time to be nice. Now, I I was thinking about that as we think about all the different stuff that's been going on in the city of Milwaukee. Now, you you had the, the incidents that happened on Friday night that are getting all this national attention, 17 people shot in the area of Water Street, a couple more shot a couple blocks away, another person shot before that, and the fact that the, that the violence, you know, continued over the course of the weekend and, and has continued into the new week. Milwaukee police investigating four separate shootings that happened yesterday and early this morning, so late last night, early this morning. One person is dead. Four others were wounded as a result of the shootings. First shooting happened near 95th and Allen around 9.15 p.m. The victim, a 17-year-old Milwaukee boy, sustained non-fatal injuries after being struck by gunfire. Second shooting happened at 54th, 51st Boulevard and Marion Street around 11. The victim, a 29-year-old man, suffered non-fatal injuries after being struck by gunfire. Third shooting, 37th in Burleigh, 1130. 31-year-old man was killed, taken to the hospital and pronounced dead. Let me see. Was there another one? Oh, Milwaukee police are also investigating a double shooting that happened around 12 a.m. near 27th and Medford. Victim number one is a 22-year-old Milwaukee man who suffered a non-fatal gunshot wound. Victim number two is a 31-year-old man from Milwaukee who sustained a non-fatal gunshot wound. So another one of these deals where, you know, another night, another half dozen approximately people who are shot, in this case one ends up dead. And and so you've got the violence that is continuing, and you've got now as a result of what happened on Friday, once again, everybody in the downtown Milwaukee area, particularly the downtown business district, is appropriately freaking out because you have all these businesses and these people who've invested all this this money, and they are concerned that, well, people aren't going to come down because of, of the violence that, that's there. Now, some people want to poo-poo it. I don't think you can 
look at the fact that you've got 20 or 25 different cars being stolen in any given night or day off, off the streets in Milwaukee. And you can look at, you know, what's happening on a regular basis with gunfire that's just breaking out. And, and I don't think you can look at that and just say, hey, what we're doing, you know, is working because it's, it's clearly not. So one of the discussions that's going on is, you know, how do you deal with this? And I've been reading, like, in the newspaper, some of the descriptions about, you know, like, what's going on, on on Water Street and all. And, and they're just, again, talking about how, you know, what what's happening is that th- there's just so many people down there and that there, there's not enough police officers. And, and the police are saying, look, we've got limited resources. And, and that that's true because the number of cops on the street has dropped over the last couple of years. And they're talking about how you've got crowds of 50 people standing on the corner in front of businesses. People can't get in and out of, of their cars. Um, you've got people who are essentially turning for example, Water Street into a, an open air street festival where you and remember this happened a couple of years ago too, where you've got the people that are going down there and they're not necessarily going down to patronize the businesses. They're going down there to to have the party and to drive slow and to dance in the street and to just hang around and, and loiter. And you have a police presence, but it's not enough to deal with the large number of people that are down there. And on top of that, it's not, in some respects, we we don't have, we haven't given the police the tools to to deal with this. So you get into a situation where you've got people that are are loitering or are drinking in public or smoking dope or, you know, getting into these fights and stuff, and the police, you know, they're they're outnumbered. I mean, there's 50 people and there's one cop, and you sit there and you say, okay, well, we'll move along. And you know nobody does, and you're in a situation where you know what what do you expect the, the police to do? And there's different ideas being thrown around, saying okay, maybe we should tell the bars they have to close down at eleven. I, you don't want to do that. I mean these these are tax paying businesses, and that that's that's letting the bad guys and the out of control people win. There's some people saying, well, maybe what we should do is fence off the area. I, I don't know that you can legally end up doing that. I guess here's how I look at this, and I kind of go back to that movie Roadhouse, which is where I started. What I think you need to have happen is I I think you need to have a sufficient police presence to deal with the crowds. That's number one. And what that means is that means making a commitment to hire lots and lots more police officers. We have let the number of police officers on the street decrease over the years. And if that means taking a bunch of the COVID money and using it to hire police officers, that's fine. If that means going to Madison and rattling on doors of Governor Evers and the Republicans in the legislature and saying, look, we've got a major crime problem in this area. We need to replenish the number of police officers, and we want to aggressively start hiring and bringing more people in. And I understand it's not something you can just flip a switch. It takes a little bit of time to do it, but I I think you'd need to do it because you can't have a situation where the police officers are are just outnumbered, where you've got you know a handful of them, and, and there's murders going on all across the city, you can't take every police officer and put them on Water Street, for example, trying to, to manage crowds and do crowd control, especially when you don't have enough cops. So I, I think, first of all, you need to have a commitment to have not just a couple more police officers, but a lot more 
police officers on the street. And secondly, and this dovetails back to where I started with, I think you want to tell the officers to be nice. When you have the crowd of 50 that's loitering on the street corner in front of the bar, you ask them to move along, and you ask them nicely. Right? When they refuse to move along, you tell them again. They say, look, okay, it, it's... I'm going to ask you nicely. You you cannot stay here. We've got all these different things, but you be nice. And then when they still refuse to do it, and when they're partying in the street, and when they're not listening to you, at that point in time, I think it's time to stop being nice. And by that, I mean that's the time that you call in the backup and you start making mass arrests. Now, maybe you need more laws that allow you, and I'm not talking about giving somebody a $100 ticket. I mean, I'm talking about arresting people, putting the bracelets on, and, and then hauling them off and letting them sit, you know, in in whatever sort of detention facility you have. So you get serious about saying, look, we're going to take back the streets. And, and maybe that means you need a couple more laws that are available to deal with this stuff. But you've got to start taking back the streets. And it starts, to me, with enough police that you can put on the street so you can control the crowds. And I, I'm not, this is not a criticism of the police officers. I think they are overwhelmed and they are outnumbered when it comes to folks. And in case many situations, people have, they have not got no respect for the cops. They're not listening to the police. They're there to do whatever they're going to do. And they're not concerned. Hey, you're going to give me a ticket for loitering? Okay, here, I'm going to crumble it up in your face. You need more police. And then you need a commitment that, hey, when people refuse to do what they're told and you're loitering and you're causing problems or you're violating different ordinances or whatever, we're going to remove you from the scene. And, okay, maybe that's going to make for a, a rough couple evenings. But once the word gets out that you're not going to put up with this stuff, I think things get better. And just like the movie Roadhouse, where nothing gets better until they start changing the attitude of the people that are coming to the bar and realizing that there's going to be consequences for bad behavior. Nothing is going to get better in some of these areas downtown until that same sort of thing happens. 855-616-1620, what do you think? And, and what should they do? To me, the answer is you've just got to get more cops. You've got to get more cops, and then you have to embolden and allow the police to do their job. And if people decide that they're going to ignore those police officers when the cops are doing their job, there there needs to be consequences. 855-616-1620. And once that word gets out, I, I think things get better. But they don't get better until that word does get out. We discuss. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I think you're right. You have to ruin a few people's nights until they stop ruining everyone else's. And, and yeah, I I mean, right now, and this is why this is not an indictment of the police, they are stretched too thin. You've got car thefts all over the city of Milwaukee. You've got murders. You've got shootings all over the city of Milwaukee. And... I understand what happened Friday night. There was a police presence, and it wasn't a small police presence, but yet it wasn't enough to discourage the shootings and the the behavior that went on. My point is, I think the answer to that is what you have to do is you have to increase the police presence even more, and you have to be proactive. You're nice. You ask people to move along. You say you can't have 50 people congregate on this corner, and if... 
you ask them nicely and and they ignore you and go on, you know, partying and dancing in the streets and stuff like that. That's the point in time where you ask them again nicely to do that. And then if they're not doing it, then what happens is you call in the backup and you start putting handcuffs on people and hauling them off. And and let's figure out things that they can be charged with other than just giving them a hundred dollar ticket for, you know, again, loitering or whatever that would be that they're not going to pay anyway. There needs to be some sort of consequence because you cannot allow people to congregate in this fashion and, again, take everybody's good time away. And I don't think you can say, to me, if if you say, and one of the ideas that's being kicked around is, hey, let's impose like curfews on on everybody. Let's make the bars close at 11 o'clock at night. That's not right. I mean, these bars need to make money, for example. You know, what we have to do is figure out a way to control the people that are causing trouble deal with that and say, look, you know, we don't care where you go. You, you can go, go home. Go home. You cannot stay here. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Mark in New Berlin. Mark, you're first. Good afternoon. Well, good afternoon. Yeah, I've seen this firsthand. And this isn't like Madison on Halloween or um, Ohio State where they, you know, on their main drag. This is the real deal. These are armed felons down there. Not everyone. But there's a, you know, there's, you know, there's Glock automatic pistols. Mm-hmm. There's AR-15s up the yin-yang. I said, we need the National Guard almost on weekends. It might sound ludicrous, but th- this isn't a normal group. This isn't a Halloween bash. These guys are, these guys are ruthless. Well, that, I mean, this isn't, I mean, I don't know how to put it. Well, no, I, no. Well, no, thank No, I, Mike, I, Mark, I think you're, I mean, look, this is, there are always going to be special things like you're talking about like like Halloween in Madison something where where it's kind of a special event this is these are regular Friday and Saturday nights and you're, you're right there's a certain element we, we went through this when we had the, the last time we had the incidents for example on Water Street and, and what you found is there were a lot of people who just came down there who had no intention at all of patronizing the, the various businesses were there they were just there because this was going to be the, the hangout spot and we're going to dance in the streets and we're going to smoke dope and we're going to you know drink out of our cars and things like that and you just you cannot allow that to to go on because if you let it go on then to your point what's going to happen is is the things that that end up happening people are going to act out they're going to pull out the guns you're going to have the shootings and things like that you you've got to get this under control but one of the the things that really struck me about the article that was in the paper either yesterday or, or today was the fact that you know that the police are saying well we had a police presence we were just completely and totally overwhelmed you know there we don't have enough cops to deal with all the people that are coming down there including the people that are looking for trouble that's a very very bad equation and if that's the case what we need to do as a starting point is get more cops so that they are are not outnumbered and i understand it's never going to be like one to one but you need to have don't you enough of a police presence to deal with whatever the whatever the the threat for want of a better word is going to be 855-616-1620 let's talk to mike and brown deer mike you're on wtmj hello Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Yeah, um, I definitely agree. Uh, the approach uh, of the officer should be nice and everything. Um, I also agree with you with what you're saying as far as uh, the the cops' presence, because um, we'll, the cops will never be the majority. They'll always be outnumbered, sure. especially in a special event like that. So I think um, we could invest more into better policing. Um, 
I think that would prevent a lot of the guys who have a, a history of causing problems. Um, if we get, because majority of the people are, they just want to have fun. Majority, it's not like everybody down there is yep. down there to cause trouble. It's majority of the people want to have fun. It's just a small group who are, uh, you know, they like to cause problems. And yep. that's, I'm sure they all have records. I think um, if you just get the right people off the street, everything will be fine. They just need um, to get the right people off the street. Well, I guess, I mean, thanks. I mean, it's the problem, though, is, is how, how do you do that? Now, I See, I, I agree with you to an extent. Look, if I'm, my, my days of hanging out on the street corner at, on, on, on Water Street at, at 1130 at night are, are long gone. But okay. But so I, if I'm there with some of my friends and I'm on the corner and the police officers come around and they say, hey, look, you, you guys got to move around all along. You, you, you can't loiter in this area. I'm going to move along. And I think most people probably are. You you have that core group of people, and I don't know if it's 5% or 10% or whatever, who, though, just decide, no, I'm not going to listen to what the cops say. And, and and those are the ones, I guess, that I'm saying that you, you have to be aggressive in dealing with, and you have to make sure that you have enough of a police presence to, when, when you tell people to move along or hey, you know, you can't be doing that in the middle of the street or whatever, and they ignore you, you have to have enough of a police presence that you can control that situation because let's let's get the troublemakers off the street. If that's 5 or 10%, that's fine. And I agree with you. Look, what happened Friday, not everybody had guns. Not everybody was shooting this up. But you had at least, what, 10 people who, 10, I forget how many guns they you know ended up finding, at least 10 or 11 people who came down there armed who decided, that they wanted to get into a shootout. Well, let's even if that's only one percent or point zero one percent of the people that were there, that that point zero one percent caused a heck of a lot of trouble. And and so let's make sure that there's enough cops that are there. And I appreciate that means you got to hire more cops. We have to make that commitment. But things aren't going to start getting better until we deal with it. And I, I have no problem with curfews and giving people tickets. That's fine. But let's face it, that's not going to solve the problem. You've got to get to your point. You've got to get the people that are intent on causing trouble. You've got to get them off the streets. And you're not going to be able to do that unless you have enough of a police presence and the police have the wherewithal. And I include you know, backing from the city attorney and backing from the district attorney that when they go in and they do these enforcement actions, that they're going to be supported. Jeff, they need to outlaw concealed carry in the city of Milwaukee. That's for everybody. Fence off Water Street, check for weapons. I doubt that too many of the people who were involved in that shooting on Friday night on Water Street or the other shootings, I doubt too many of them are concealed carry holders. That's just my general sense. Yeah, it's easy to confuse Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone because... Especially if you're a child of the 60s or 70s or you, or you watch the, those replays of the shows, because the same guy, Fess Parker, you know, played both characters. Uh, Davy Crockett actually historically, I mean, came after uh, Daniel Boone. Davy Crockett uh, was born in like 1786 and lived till March of 1836. So he, he, he was involved there and of course died in, at the Alamo. That was this. Daniel Boone was different. Daniel Boone was an an explorer. He fought for the 
in the American Revolution on, on the side of what turned out to be America. And he was a, a, a pioneer. Um, originally, you had the 13 colonies that were, of course, the 13, ultimately the 13 original colonies in the United States. And Daniel Boone was an explorer as he pushed out and um, ended up being one of the principal settlers of the state of now what is, is Kentucky. And they, they pushed through like the Cumberland Gap, the Cumberland Mountains or Tennessee and Virginia and, and Kentucky. And he pushed through there and, you know, ended up being involved in the colonization of of, of what, what turned out to be Kentucky. Uh, Daniel Boone was a very, very renowned, you know, historical figure and explorer. And, you know, over the years, Daniel Boone has been, you know, recognized and he's been celebrated and he's been honored in different ways. Daniel Boone, for example, in Chicago, of all places, for years and years and years and years and years, there has been an elementary school in Chicago called Daniel Boone Elementary School. Now, nobody knows exactly why it was named Daniel Boone Elementary School, you know, decades and decades and decades ago. But it, it's been, you know, Daniel Boone Elementary School since 1928. Right? Starting in the next year or so, it will no longer be Daniel Boone Elementary School. It will not be Daniel Elementary, Boone Elementary School because you have at least a handful of, I would say, politically correct people who've decided that you need to cancel Daniel Boone. Because, you see, even though history is somewhat vague about all this, uh, that they're, they believe that Daniel Boone, during the course of his lifetime, might have owned as many as seven slaves. Now, back at the time, you know, I mean, he lived, again, from 1734 till 1820. I mean, slavery was, in fact, illegal. It's a little bit unclear, did he actually own slaves or not? But, but the, the argument is, yes, we think that over time he might have owned as many as seven slaves. In addition, Daniel Boone was was an explorer, and you know, he, as a result of that, he was um, he as they moved into Kentucky. What happened is you had Native Americans, indigenous people, as we say, who didn't like the fact that you had people like Daniel Boone who were bringing um, colonizers. You know, from the 13 colonies and, and bringing and, and trying to set a lot, set a space in areas that are nutritionally, uh, you know, territory of the indigenous people. And, you know, there were there were fights. If you ever watch the TV shows, not necessarily historically accurate, but, you know, you had Boonesboro and, you know, there were some. Indians that were friendly and there were some that were unfriendly. And, you know, he was, again, one of these frontiersmen that was involved in uh, battles, again, in connection with the colonization. Well, all right. Now, the people who live in Kentucky now are glad that there was a Daniel Boone because otherwise they they wouldn't have a Kentucky to, to live in. But there's no question that, you know, he, again, led settlers into Kentucky and was one of the people instrumental in doing that. And as a result of that, you displaced Native Americans. So the thinking is, in terms of saying we we can't have a Daniel Boone Elementary School anymore, well, it's despite the fact that this was, you know, going on 
200, uh, going on um, 300 years ago since he was born, um, 250, 300 years, whatever that would be. You know, he was a colonizer. He owned a handful of slaves. It's not like he was a huge slave owner. And he was involved in bringing settlers and displacing Native Americans. So we can't have a school named after him. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this the cancel culture once again run amok? Or do the people that object to this have a legitimate point? And if you're going to cancel Daniel Boone, where, where do we stop? Do we pretty much say anybody that was born before 1850, let, let's not let's not even bother, regardless of what their contributions are. Let's let's take the names off of schools. Let's take the names off the of streets, and then we'll critically look at the people who were born between 1850 and 1950, and we'll decide whether you know anything they did was sufficient. They're canceling Daniel Boone. Does that go too far? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. We discuss. Hey, just a little bit of trivia here. If you've ever seen the, the movie or read the book, The Last of the Mohicans by um, James Fenimore Cooper, that is that is a fictionalized version of something that, that actually happened to uh, Daniel Boone. 1776, Daniel Boone's daughter and two other girls were, were kidnapped by a what they described as an Indian War Party, and and just like in the and now it's a fictionalized version of it, uh, which is Last Mohicans, but Boone and uh, like a posse go and they they end up taking the the girls back. So the, if you read Last of the Mohicans, that's again a fictionalized version of something that Daniel Boone actually got involved in. But the bottom line is just like many people, many of our founding fathers and explorers, etc., you know, Daniel Boone's legacy, I guess, is, is somewhat complicated. On the one hand, you can say this is the guy that founded Kentucky and he was, you know, brought the, the settlers in. At the same time, I guess you can look at it and say, well, in doing that, he displaced, you know, he, he fought with American Indians um, and many of the Native Americans during the Revolutionary War uh, joined on the side of the British because they figured that that was the way to kind of stop the colonizers and things like that. So, I mean, it is a point in American history, but does that mean you cancel Daniel Boone? Let's talk to Katie in Burlington. Katie, you're on WTMJ. Hi. I find this line of thinking ridiculous. And if you take it to, I guess, their logical conclusion, well, then you basically should dissolve Kentucky and virtually all 50 states because... Each one of them involved the displacement of indigenous people. Um, so what do you do that? I mean, do you basically just rewrite history? Because it is a part of our history, the good, bad, and the ugly. We study it. We should learn from it. And hopefully moving forward, not make some of the same prejudicial mistakes or mistakes that other people had to make. But, I mean, really, you'd have to get rid of Kentucky. It was the whole premise of that state and its founding was the displacement of indigenous people yeah so then no schools no streets no 50 states yeah. I mean, that is taking that mode of thinking to its logical conclusion which is completely ridiculous completely illogical and and basically denying the history that we have we have to look at it you learn from it and and it I just don't understand that people cannot deal with it. Well, and Katie, think, plus it does absolutely nothing. Change, changing the name of it. It's been Daniel Boone Elementary School for 100 years. Taking that name off does absolutely nothing to help better educate any one of the children that, that is going to that school. I mean, it seems to me this is just such a, a waste of, of spirit 
to to try to to deal with this sort of thing. And and to your point, I mean, I I I, I mockingly say this, but you know, th- there's this effort to cancel James Madison because you know even you know James Madison, your former president of the United States, J- James Madison owned slaves in his time. So, okay, we, we had to change the name of, like, Madison High School. Well, my question is, how can we continue to have the city of Madison? I mean, if if you're going to cancel James Madison, don't you have to go all the way? Let's talk to Vincent on the northwest side. Hi, Vincent. Good afternoon, Jeff. You know, I agree with the last caller. You know, uh, the, the, the issue is, is that Daniel Boone uh, was part of history. Washington was a part of American history, so is uh, Thomas Jefferson. But when you understand, uh, when you look at a man's legacy, you have to look at the whole legacy. You just can't praise the man for basically uh, coming in and, and creating Kentucky. But you have to understand the other side of the man as well, which uh, which, which American seems like American history doesn't want to teach. The fact is, is when you look at, uh, let's say, Thomas Jefferson, who who who, who was uh, the president, uh, one of the presidents of this nation, and, and mm-hmm. one of the founding fathers. The fact is, certainly he was that. But the fact is, he was also a a, a pedophile and also a, a rapist and 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 a slave owner. And so 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 why can't we tell both sides of that particular history and and and, and let people decide on how they want to feel about an individual? See, but the fact is that the, the, over the years we've looked at these individuals and praised them for those things that they that we feel that they've done great for America, but we haven't looked at at their entire legacy and the whole of a man. And I think that that's what people are are, are concerned about. Is that this is that you don't want to teach that other side of this individual? Well, and again, Vincent, thanks for calling. I mean, I have no problem with that. I, I guess at the same time, though, and if look, if you want to give a warts and all uh, approach to you know historical figures who, in many cases, were, were products of of their time, that the okay, you're you're a, a, an explorer, you're you're a settler, you're a colon, you know, you are involved in helping colonize things, you know. That, that's that's one thing. And I guess if you want to look at it from the other side, well, you displace the you know the Native Americans. I, I understand all that, and if you want to argue that that makes it um, that that your your legacy should then be I don't know viewed as, as both sides because nobody's perfect. I, I'll accept that, but does that mean that you can't? recognize people for the accomplishments they had because, you know, judged by 2022 standards, well, you know, he displaced the American Indians. Yes, he, he did in Kentucky, but there wouldn't have been a Kentucky were it not for him. Does that mean you can't have his name on an elementary school? 